You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Solace. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. This week on the show, I'm talking to a fixture of the Columbus, Ohio music scene, author, social worker, and founder of the Anyway Records label, Bela Co. Crompicher. Bela's new book, Love, Death, and Photosynthesis, is out now on Don Giovanni Records. You can pick it up at DonGiovanniRecords.com. That's D-O-N-G-I-O-V-A-N-N-I Records.com or wherever fine books are sold. It was a pleasure to speak to him about the book, his life in the music biz, his personal recovery from alcoholism, and the many other ways in which our life stories have been similar, as you'll hear. So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Bela Co. Crompicher. Bela, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I was excited to talk to you, uh, not only because your new book is really good, but also uh, in just learning about your story, we have so many common points. We've both run record labels, although you more successfully than me. We both have a long history of working in record stores. We both have personal recovery stories, and we have both unfortunately lost friends to addiction and mental illness. I want to ask you about both the book and your life. And since both are so intertwined, forgive me if it gets blurry, but starting at the beginning, you write so beautifully in the book about falling in love with music at a young age. And I'm just curious, why do you think you connected with music as opposed to other interests or whatever so fiercely? Um, well, thank, thank you for the kind words, especially. And, and I want to thank you for spending time with the book because that's always humbling that somebody actually spends that much. It's, it's even more, you spend more time with the book than a record, right? Um, I mean, there's more of an investment, I guess. So anyway, I, I appreciate it. And um, yeah, and, and I'm glad you could relate to the book, um, you know, the good parts and the sad parts. So I, I'm also a social worker. That's my main job. And, and uh, I'm also a lecturer at Ohio State. So if this sounds like a little wonky, my answer about music um, is because is I'll, I'll be a little technical, I think, of why people relate to art and to music, especially in a certain way. Um, and it's not true for, for all people, but I certainly think among the community that I've been a part of for many years, and it sounds like, you know, obviously you have too with your own story, um, is that people who I feel have been deeply wounded as children um, look for solace. And one of the interesting things about many substance users is that we actually uh, – process the physical environment differently than other people on a cellular level. And um, by that same idea, 
that we actually process music differently. So we actually feel music differently than, than other people. Um, music for me at a very, very, very early age, some of my, my earliest memories are listening to records, um, mostly folk raised records that, that my mom had bought us, you know, really, uh, from, you know, age of four or five, uh, there were several records. I really liked Pete Seeger and, um, there's a folkways record by this woman, Charity Bailey, that I really liked a kid's record. And, um, so one, I, I like the excitement of music, you know, it was fun, but I also felt this kinship and a way to sort of, uh, fall into myself and be okay for a moment. And oddly at 53 years old, I still have the same, um, I still have the same reaction to, to music. And I, I listen to music, um, Right now, I, I, I split my time between work and, and home. You know, I work from home. So I'm always playing music and I'm always like, you know, when I go to the gym, I'm listening to it. So uh, that refuge that it offered at a young age was was important for me. But also when I got older and I knew musicians and could see music live, that sort of upped the ante a little bit. Um, and, and I think there's there's a spiritual component to listening to music, especially collectively, um, almost like a church, <laughs> like a like I, I what I imagine is I'm not a religious person, but I imagine what some people get out of church in that that community. Um, so I, I don't know if that's helpful if that answers it for you. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious, do you play or were you ever tempted to play yourself? No, I've never really had an interest. I, you know, when I was really young, I took guitar lessons for a little while, but I just, I just never really had, had an interest in it. I've always just been a, a fan. Um, you know, I can't sing very well. Not that that really makes a, di- a difference, but like, I don't even think I could remember words to songs, <laughs> uh, let alone like chord changes. And there's a lot of math in there. I, I feel so, <laughs> Um, so no, I just, I've always been happy just, just to be a fan, just, just to enjoy it. You are well known as a fixture of the Columbus, Ohio music scene. So I guess I have to ask what brought you there in the first place? Um, well, so there's two main characters in the book, uh, Jenny May and Jerry Wick and Jenny was my high school sweetheart. I, my plan was not to attend college and. Columbus was, but to go to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. But Jenny wanted to play um, trumpet in the, in the Ohio State Marching Band, so I ended up moving to Columbus because she was going to college here. Um, I went to a small liberal arts college on the north end of town and promptly dropped out after a quarter. And really didn't, I didn't go back to, I had several failed attempts at going back to college, but I didn't go back until I was 35. But that so one could say it was for education, but it was really love. <laughs> and and my my family, um, my grandparents lived here, and my mom grew up here, so I was very familiar with it. How many years do you have in the record store game in Columbus? Oh my God! Um, 
Well, I haven't worked in a record store since 2007. I started working in record stores around 88. So from 88 to 2007. So was it 19 years? Um, and I worked in a, just a ton of record stores. I worked at um, probably five different record stores, but my longest stint was at Use Kids, which was a pretty um, well-known store. And I became a part owner of that store in the mid-90s up until I left in, in, in 2007. Uh, I People ask me if I miss working in a record store and I don't <laughs> um, it's it's uh, I think it's a great job up up until you're about 25 um, I don't think I could ever work retail again I, I have no interest in doing doing anything like that um, and I and I actually think like the record stores of, of today are not the record stores that I grew up with like people just access music differently I mean I know people really, I mean, I still go to the record store a couple times a week, but, um, you know, my kids don't, the, the way they, they access music is very different than, you know, like going to a record store and knowing who the clerks were and getting tips from them and, and, you know, this sort of clubhouse feel of it. That's, that I think is, is gone, um, for the most part. Well, you've got me beat. I did the math on me. I think I've got 12 years in the game. Oh, are you still working at a store? Loosely, actually. You you might even know the store uh, that I worked the longest at, Shangri-La Records in Memphis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, my God. Um, oh, I, uh, I can't think of his name. Sherman, right? Sherman Wilmot, yeah. Is he still the owner? No, no, he is. Um, he now still runs the label side of it, which he calls Shangri La Projects. But the store has transferred to Jared McStay from the Shangri La Records band, The Simple Tones. I don't know if you remember them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I brought them to Columbus. <laughs> and I was um, good friends with all the Grifters guys. So you, you probably know them pretty well. My first show ever as a musician was when I was 14 opening for the Grifters at the Antenna Club in Memphis. Oh, wow. So you probably know Jeff Evans, too. Yeah, absolutely. I know Jeff and I know Ross Johnson as well. Yeah, Jeff used to work at Use Kids years ago when he lived in Columbus. It's a small world. Oh, wow. Insanely small world. No, when I was uh, when I was the buyer at Use Kids, I would order those Grifter records direct from Sherman because um, we sold tons of them. Yeah, I noticed you had the Grifters on your uh, Spotify playlist for the book, which I have listened to several times. Yeah, and there's a there's a photo of them I think in the book as well. I, I think I write a little bit about them. One of the great unheralded bands of the '90s. Absolutely. Absolutely. Crap and You Negative is one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah. So good. I know that another big part of your life, which is still a part of your life, is running the label Anyway Records. That that goes back to what, 1991? Mm -hmm. In 91, 92. What inspired you to start your own label? I started the label uh, with Jerry Wick. It came out of a breakup. Um I was pretty much in the doldrums and uh, Jerry 
had this idea. I had I had helped finance the first Gaunt New Bomb Turk single. Um, and I just I had a little bit of money, probably like four hundred dollars. And uh, so I put out a Gaunt seven inch with Jerry and then it was weird. He had like big plans for the label, um, which was very typical of Jerry. But he didn't have he never had any money. I really didn't have any money. So um, I just sort of took everything release by release and all the early records kind of sold pretty well. And then I got a a P&D deal uh, with Revolver um, out in California, and they were actually um, pressing all my records for a couple years. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) I'm not a very good businessman. I don't even think I'm a very good record store um, owner or record, record label owner. Um, I, I think it's hard to sell records. Um, and, and I've, I've never been that great at it. I, I, I'm really proud of all the records we put out. I, you know, I don't really think we put out any bad records. Um, I think it's, it's pretty solid, but at this point, the label is more of a collective than it ever was that, um, because, because as, as you're probably knows that records don't sell very much. Um, and it's really, really hard to even break even on, on records, even, even for a well-known band. So, uh, at this point, you know, when I work with bands there, there's usually for the most part, some contribution from them. Um, there's a lot of expectations that they're going to work a lot of the publicity themselves. Like I said, you know, I'm in, in my fifties now. I, I have several different jobs. Um, you know, I'm, I have kids and other responsibilities, personal responsibilities. So, uh, running the label is not as important to me as it was at, at one time. And the, the business has changed a lot. So, um, it's, there's a lot oddly there's a lot more competition to sell records now uh i've pretty opinionated on like what you know record store day and what reissues do to small labels um and new artists It, it really pushes them more to the margins you know when 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 you're competing when a new band is competing with a fleetwood mac or even a david bowie or um, looking for rack, you know, competing for rack space with, you know, Sugar Ray reissues or, or some kind of bullshit that um, for newer bands that really mean a lot to some of us, it's they get eliminated. And so it's it's much harder. Um, streaming is, is great in the sense that more people can hear it, but it doesn't pay. <laughs> so. It's the same, actually, with vinyl production. I can tell you that you know a lot of smaller artists and labels are being squeezed out just so the big labels can swoop in and press more copies of Rumors or whatever. Exactly, yeah. I, we have a record out. There's a Jenny May comp that's coming out, and um, it's a six-month delay. I mean, it's absurd. I can't imagine. I mean, in, 
luckily she's dead, so she can't tour. But I can't imagine a band touring around a record right now because um, that is so important to get the music heard and to actually sell the record. And there's no record to sell uh, because of, of these insane delays. Like, like, you know, I go in to the record store and I look at all the record store releases and there's like 12 inch, like limited edition 12 inches. Like who the fuck listens to a 12 inch? You know, it's like $20 for two songs. It's, it's I don't know. I have my feeling, obviously I have my feelings about it, you, you know, and I just can't imagine that people are going home and really listening to that. Yeah, I've worked through several record store days as a record store employee, and it gets a little ridiculous when you see, you know, person after person asking you for the glow in the dark Ghostbusters 12 inch or something. It's like, really? Yeah. That's what you want to spend your money on? And it's, um, it's disruptive. I mean, it's, it's disrupted for a model that has been working since the late 70s, you know, for, for our, for, for our community, um, not not to say that people don't have a right to, to buy or manufacture what, what they do, but it's it's difficult. Switching gears, uh, because I know I only have you for a limited time. You've mentioned a couple times that you now work in as a social worker and in the recovery uh, business. I guess you would say. Um, so I want to go back to how you got sober. Do I? I know that the death of your friend played a big part in, into that eventual decision, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I started drinking at 14 or so, um, you know, m- mostly on the weekends, like growing up and especially going to high school in, in rural Ohio, there wasn't much to do. And the drinking age was, was earlier than like, I was never a, really a drug user. I never, uh, enjoyed it, not not even weed, but I loved drinking. I I loved how it uh, not only made me feel physically, but I felt like a sense of belonging. I was pretty much a happy drunk. Um, and then you know when I went off and moved to Columbus, I found this community, right? The, the musicians and artists, and and um, while everything revolved around music and art, it also took place. The settings were bars for the most part nightclubs so i spent most of my time in those places so the the idea that maybe i was drinking too much didn't hit me until later until my late 20s you know i had gone through several relationships um at that time uh there were you know some of my friends were growing up they they had graduated they were becoming teachers or owning houses um but the consequences that were happening were getting pretty severe. Um, friends were dying. And, um, you know, for me, it was more of an internal, like I, I never missed work or, or anything like that because of it. I, I never got arrested. I never had a DUI. But internally, the drinking combined with my depression really brought me to a really, really dark place. Um, and then Jerry died in 2001 and I quit drinking early 2002. Um, I was seeing a counselor. I was, I was seeing a counselor and I went to a psychiatrist and, 
and uh, he had told me that I could have, I might be bipolar, but I was definitely an alcoholic. And I remember telling my my now ex-wife like, oh, I'm bipolar and I might be an alcoholic. And um, it turns out I'm not bipolar, but I do have de- depression. And um, because I didn't want, I didn't want to have a drinking problem, right? Like I didn't, I didn't want to give that up. I, I had this very long relationship with it. Uh, through the recovery process, though, it, it opened up a whole new world for me. Um, I learned a, a lot of new skills and kind of work through this this idea of um, sitting with very uncomfortable feelings and, and mo- moving through those and not having to do certain be- behaviors to to work with them. And it, it brought me to the field of social work, um, which, you know, I primarily work with dual di- diagnosed uh, clients. And I do a lot of um, what I've been doing for the last couple, well, actually, for most of my career as a social worker, is I do program design as well. So my current job right now, I, I work in developing a um, substance abuse program for LGBTQ folks. And I, I really, really, really enjoy I, I see a few clients. I do some therapy, but I don't do that much. Um, and the book talks a lot I think about the system failures, especially with Jenny's story, because she was, you know, she was a musician and she became homeless and that um, my years of trying to help her and running into the, the frustrations of, of systems of poverty, of, of oppression, how that contributed to her life and eventually her death. Um, I mean, certainly her decision-making played a role in her death, the primary role, but there were things in place that should have been in place that, that weren't like there, there was no reason for this woman to be homeless for nearly three years. Um, this very bright, um, funny, brilliant person should not have been, uh, homeless. So part of the work that I do and actually teach about Ohio state is systems and policy. And I'm still very much an advocate in that in that way. So, like you know, my recovery has brought me a long way. Um, and you know, I haven't been in a fight <laughs> since since I quit drinking. Um, I don't have any liver problems. Um, I mean, I think we continue to have re- have relationship problems, obviously, because we're human. But it's not to the severity that it was when I was drinking. I don't have that self loathing. I, I had. How did you let go of that self-loathing? I have to know. I'd love to find it oh my for God. myself. Uh, years and it, it pops up, right? So, so it doesn't necessarily go away. Um, it it burbles up. So years, like really, literally years of therapy. I have a very, very good therapist. Um, when I was fifteen years sober, my marriage wasn't doing very well. I mean, eventually we, we divorced, um, but we actually get along extremely well. But when I went to see him, um, he was like, Oh, this makes a lot of sense. I see a lot of people who have that many years sober who are still struggling with depression and abandonment issues. And, um, it, it really helped me come to terms with sort of that darkness that I think lives within us that's actually underneath the darkness that that we we tend like there's different labels levels not labels 
of of it of trying to um, realize what that how to touch that and then move within yourself while acknowledging it because it never goes away. And, um, you know, I, I found like a spiritual practice that works for me, you know, like I, I became a Buddhist and I did a lot, lot, lot of meditation, but really what it helped me with, uh, what Buddhism and, and even Al-Anon helped me with was this idea of acceptance, you know, and not, not trying to judge things, in, in my life and, um, you know, one of the things that was really frustrating, especially working with Jenny for all those years, and I was a novice at helping people, was being so disappointed by her decisions and, and getting really angry at it. Um, and now I think for myself, if, if that situation happened again, and I do it in my practice, like um, I would be more accepting of her decisions and, and, and sort of like allowing her choices in her life to be sacred for her and not judging them. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's, it's probably pretty deep and hopefully listeners don't think I'm always this serious because I'm, I'm usually a pretty funny guy. <laughs> Time out. Before we get back to my guest, Bela Co. Krompacher, I must remind you that back to the light.net is your source for new and archived episodes of this show. Back to the light. Other great podcasts such as Champions of the Lost Causes, the Shangri-La Records Podcast, and the Kudzu Conservationist League. Music from myself, Loose Opinions, Blind Copy, Arthur, and more, and a link to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash jdrieger if you'd like to support me in the show. Again, you can find it all at backtothelight.net. And now, the ad.
you've just heard Spine by Gaunt. Gaunt bandleader Jerry Wick is one of the two protagonists, along with fellow musician Jenny May, of the book Love, Death, and Photosynthesis by my guest, Bela Co. Crompature. Let's get back to our conversation. A lot of your descriptions of, of your uh, interactions with, with Jenny in particular reminded me of my own interactions with a friend of mine who is no longer with us uh, named Bob, who is a musician as well, a very talented one. And I tried for many, many years to help him, you know, get healthier and improve his life and etc. I'm curious how you find peace with, I mean, letting go of the responsibility to take care of them and not pushing yourself past what you can humanly do for a person. One, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of experience doing it, you know, so I've been doing the work, you know, I started out working with the homeless, um, in 2007. So it's, it's been a while, uh, but it's this, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's this acceptance and sort of honoring people. Um, I'm a very big proponent of harm reduction, um, of, of allowing people to make their decision. Like, even though I'm abstinent, I don't expect that from other, other people. Um, for me, as a social worker and a therapist, the most important thing is, is providing a space where somebody can feel connected. And whether that's just in that hour I'm working with them, I do outreach services every Tuesday at a, at a needle exchange here in, in Columbus and just being able to sit with somebody for 15, 20 minutes and respecting them and having that, that space. Um, and then being able to walk away from that and, and it doesn't really bother me. Like the choices they make, it, it doesn't affect me. Um, I might be disappointed a little bit when I when I worked with the homeless in a housing program in downtown Columbus at the YMCA. We had a lot of we had a lot of deaths, and um, especially before I left that job when COVID first hit, we were having a lot of deaths. And and you know it was it wasn't uncommon. And usually, if, if somebody died. At, it was myself or, or somebody else in, in, you know, in the leadership or, or one of the other social workers who would go and sit with the body or find the body. Um, so I sort of just dealt with it that way. Um, I, I think the work isn't for ev everybody, um, but it's taken a lot of sort of practice and experience. And, and yeah, I, I don't know if that's, if that, if that's helpful. <laughs> I want to ask you some questions now about the book. I know that your writing about Jerry and Jenny started as a blog before it was ever, you know, thought of as a book. What inspired you to start writing about them in the first place? I I started writing it in 2009, I think. I was on um my my ex-wife is Dutch and we would go to the Netherlands every summer and I had just finished my bachelor's degree getting ready to start my master's program I had like all this brain stuff going on and I wrote a lot in the 90s but I never shared it 
And I remember I just started writing about the first time we met Jerry, Jenny and I met Jerry, which was, which, which was in a bar. And, um, I was like, I'll just, I didn't really know what a blog was. So, um, I was like, I'll just, I'll just do a blog. Like, like I asked a friend of mine in town, I, you know, I emailed him and he's like, Oh, just, just do a blog. And so I just threw it up there. Um, I didn't have an editor or anything like that. And, uh, I wrote a lot that trip and the response was immediate. I mean, it was, it, it sort of became something in, you know, this underground scene that, you know, like paste wrote about it. Um, folks, you know, like, you know, indie musicians really related to it, you know, older ones. And it, it was crazy. Like, um, I was getting thousands and thousands of reads every time I put something up. Um, but because of, of my job and because I was in school, I, in some ways I was very fortunate that, that I only had, I, I only wrote when I wanted to, and I was inspired to, and I, w- I wrote whatever, whatever I wanted to write about. I knew immediately I wanted to tell their story, but I didn't know how that was going to look. And I didn't want to do it in a linear fashion. That's why the book is not, a, in, in, it's not on a timeline, right? Um, because I would think about something, or I, I would hear a song, and, and Ginny was alive, you know, when, when, when I wrote it. And so uh, I would have interactions with her and she was actually a client at the agency I worked at, you know, we, we worked with the homeless and um, you know, I would, I would come out to the lobby and there she would be there with her boyfriend, um, you know, with her Wendy's, you know, she usually carried like a, a, wind, a large Wendy's soda and would fill it with, with like vodka and high C or, or, or soda. And, um, you know, I would talk to her, but like she wasn't my client. I, I, I had to like play this, you know, I, I, it was very startling for me, um, very emotional as well. And so I, I wrote a lot about that. I wrote a lot about music. And then, um, like I said, the, the blog kind of became this thing. Um, I mean, there's like a hundred thousand readers or, or something for it. Um, and I still put stuff up. I mean, I most mostly write like about being a middle-aged guy with kids and having depression. Um, but, uh, when she died, uh, Joe from Don Giovanni, he had talked to me a couple of years prior about putting a book out and I didn't have that. I really didn't have that much interest in it because I knew it would take a lot of work. But when she died, he reached out and said, Hey, let's do the book. So the book came, it, it was put together, um, it took about a year and a half to put it together. I mean, there was a lot of rewrites and additions and, and things like that. But the, the framework was, was already written, and I already knew how I wanted it to be formatted, which was this nonlinear approach to it. When you were writing these pieces, did you see yourself doing it to document history or were you hoping that it no. would be more of like a cautionary tale or, you know, that people would find inspiration no. from I, it? What was I, your intent? I didn't write it for anybody except myself. Yeah. Th- there was, there was nothing to do it just to do it for myself. It's, it's like if you're a musician and you're just playing guitar in your room, I mean, I didn't think 
I didn't write to, to write a book. I didn't write to get attention. Um, I mean, in some ways that that sort of wounded part of me is like, I'm not super comfortable, like putting the book out there, like promoting it. Does, does that make sense? But I, but I have to do it. And, and I do like, like talking about it. I think I'm a good writer. I think I want people to read my book, but there's, there was a hesitancy there of pushing it. So the only things that I ever did for the blog was to like post it on social media. Um, you know, like people were like, Oh, you, you could sell advertisement, but one, I'm, I'm very disorganized and, um, I think I'm a very pure writer. So, um, there wasn't, there wasn't anything about it that I wanted to teach anybody. If I wanted to teach people anything, it was sort of about this idea of the failures of, of our, of our healthcare system, <laughs> if, if that, and our housing, like how we treat poor people and, and the mentally ill. I think I, that was probably like more of a subconscious goal. Um, but it wasn't, hopefully I write in a way that's very non-judgmental of people who have a mental illness or substance abuse problems or, or, or whatever that is that just allow them the space. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that fully a- answers it. I, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm thrilled that, that I have a book out. I'm thrilled that it's doing well. Um, it's in its second printing already, which is great. Um, so I'm flattered and humbled by it. Um, but I also think it's like, I think I'm a good writer <laughs> for somebody and especially for somebody who's never been trained in it. So is it perhaps a rewarding side benefit then that, I mean, for, from my end, I was a little bit familiar with Gaunt, but I didn't really know Jenny May before I started researching this book and you, is there, you know, some, I don't know, value in this for you and sort of continuing their legacy also though? Yeah, because um, there's a part in there where I talk about Jerry because Jerry really wanted to be famous. He wanted to be like Kiss famous. He didn't. He didn't. Right. Like like there's that there's that that there's that commitment issue. And especially in the 90s, it was very pronounced like major label and us against them and and that sort of idea. Um, You know, it's very, you know, the indie underground scene has that that reluctancy right um which is part of the attraction of it the 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 community of it but it's you know i look at at like the book now there was like a, a there's always been this chicken shit part of it of 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 myself and i think jerry and and some of the you know, some of the people that I probably write about and and they may dispute it of taking that sort of plunge and and putting yourself out there. Like, like if you just hold a little bit back, you're safe that, um, but I want their stories to be heard. I want their music to be heard. I, they were important to me. Um, and so what I write, write about Jerry is like, not only do you want to be famous and this idea of being famous for me is like people, what we're really talking about underneath the, the wanting to be famous is we want to be immortal. We want to be remembered. We want to be connected long after we're gone. Um, and so I think in some ways, you know, the book does that for, for them. 
Um, not so much for myself. I mean, it's nice that there's going to be this thing out there. Um, you know, I want my kids to read it. My daughter's read it, but but my son hasn't. But, you know, like when he's 20, it would, it would it'd be neat. Um, so, yeah, I, I think for long-term expectations for myself, it's not there. But, you know, I want their music to be heard. I want people to understand how special they were for me. And also maybe to appreciate those readers who not only identify but that they can gain an appreciation for the people in their lives who are really suffering but who also may be hysterically funny and it's hysterically talented but um extremely frustrating to to love you've touched on this a little bit uh before but i wanted to ask you to expand on if it's interesting or perhaps awkward for you after having been on the other side of things for so long as a record label guide, now being forced to be the center of attention as the artist. Um, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, and I've, I've shared some of this on like on social media and I think I've written about it on the blog and I've talked about it. When the book came out that week, I, I was extremely depressed. I was it was I was sort of in a pretty dark space, um, and you know I talked a lot about with the people I'm 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 close with. Um, my partner, she's she's a writer and and she's a fairly well known writer. She's 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 pretty successful. But I talked to her about that, and she's like, "Oh, it that's what happens." That's, that's, that's what happens. It's, it's normal. Um, of, but I think there's also like, for me, there's that broken connectiveness, right? The, the, the confidence of, do I trust this thing to go out in, into the world? Um, which I'm sure, you know, from, from somebody puts out records, I'm sure like, this is what bands feel like, right? Like the record comes out and then like, and then sometimes bands go on tour and they're like, I only want to play fucking songs off this record that I made because it was this grueling process, no matter what the record is, you know, whether it's like, you know, stupid, you know, like Southern California punk rock or, or whether it's Phoebe Bridgers, there's probably this hesitancy of, Oh, I have to sort of relive this experience, which was fun, but also cathartic and, and painful. Like, it, 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 does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. As as a person who writes songs that are you know not always about the most fun subject matters, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a mixed bag. You know, it's it's cathartic, but sometimes it can be painful to relive. Like, 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 I'm even thinking like the queers, you know, they, they had the, that song, you know, this place sucks. I mean, it was probably a lot of fun doing it, but when that record came out, um, there was probably some like, ah, going on. Right. I, I'm just assuming. And, and so, and the book is heavy, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's heavy because it's a big book. Like I'm holding it. It's, it's heavy, but there's some heavy material in there, but I think there's also a lot of humor in it. Um, you know, I, I hope you laughed at times when you were reading it, the, just the absurdity of life, right? 
Absolutely. And I certainly like I respect the way you present kind of both sides of it very seemingly anyway, honestly and matter of factly. It doesn't seem um, romanticized or embellished. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't want to. I didn't want to tell. A, I didn't want to tell a story that was like my war stories. I mean, there are some pretty funny, absurd things. Like, there's a story about the Ramones, and there that is just. Um, and it's it's not that it's it's not a story about like oh I hung out with the Ramones. It was like this freakish thing that involves skinheads and weed and the Ramones and how nice they were. Um, it's that, it's that, does that make sense? Like I want to tell, I want to, I want life. I want to tell a story of what life really looks like. It's not all good. It's not all bad. It's a little bit of everything, right? It's very abstract. This has been really fun. I thank you so much for doing this. Uh, before I let you go, I definitely want to ask you, um, I mean, I know you're promoting this book, but are there any, any way records projects that you're excited about that you want to promote or anything else that you might have, uh, on the back burner? Um, well, there are. So, um, this earlier this, this year, um, we, put out this band called kneeling and piss which is um they remind me uh kind of a sort of a, of great plains which was a band here in columbus just sort of raggedy but very literate much more kind of punk in, infused um that record came out uh earlier this year there was a, a, a good record I, I'm very proud of that we were a part of called by a guy named Hello Emerson. It, it's basically just Sam's thing. Um, it's excellent. Like it's you know, similar, some, somewhat similar to to the Mountain Goats, I, I would guess. Um, Eve Barsley a little bit. Uh, things that are coming up um, is. Um, this week, we just saw the release of a new Moviola record, which was a band that I put a lot of records out by in the 90s. And so they just their new record came out last week. Um, there's going to be a Jenny May, like I mentioned earlier, a, a compilation of her earliest recordings. And then the second side will be singles that she recorded um, in the 90s and some unreleased songs that were on a third like her third record which was never completely made and then her last her very last recording um that she made about six months before she died that record is already up on spotify uh so there's there's things you know that are that are happening i i usually average about four records a year um the book definitely has put some projects on hold um that and and I'm at the point in my life where I don't want to lose money on records. So like with the Jenny record, we did a crowdfunding for it and it was successful. So I may start doing that. Um, there's a band called Long Odds with which is Adam Elliott from um, Times New Viking, and he was the drummer in Connections. So I love 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 uh, his music. So that hopefully will be out early next year. Um, 
he's uh he's like he sent me the record we listened to it and it's like nine songs and like um 17 minutes long and i was like adam why don't like you make nine more songs so we can at least get our money's worth of, if, if you know if we're gonna pay three thousand dollars to press a record let's let's have it a little bit longer because right now i don't want to put a record on selfishly in my living room and go get a cup of coffee and then i have to turn the record over like i don't want to do that <laughs> so so he's continuing to, to to work on it um and i'm writing you know i'm 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 continuing to write so well i i'll send you a, a note when i'm going to be in in chicago and it's it's kind of fun like I, i'm doing an east coast thing this weekend and my 16 year old daughter is going to go with me and like i said i don't have any expectations if three people come out or 30 people come out it's you know i never did that much touring with bands in in the 90s because of my drinking but now i can just sort of um, listen to podcasts and, you know, drive to New York and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and, and listen and, and just have fun. It's funny you would say that because it was actually touring with bands that mostly got me started drinking. <laughs> yeah. And I was scared to do it. You know, there's a couple times where, where I was going to go out with bands. Um, but like when, you know, if I go to Chicago or New York with Gone or, or other bands, like I just got so drunk and so sloppy that I just knew I couldn't handle it for, you know, two weeks. Um, there's no way. Yeah, it's it's brutal. And uh, for me, the, the rough part was when it started carrying over to my non-touring life. Like I'd find my like... I'm not even like, why am I doing this today? Why am I drinking all day today? We're not, you know, I'm at home. Why am I doing this to myself? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like we don't know how, like so many of us don't know how And and I'm saying we, cause I, I think you can relate. Like we, we, we grow up like not learning how to feel unsettled. Right. So we need to fix it. We need this to, to relieve the boredom of, of life. And, Alcohol is pretty good at doing that. Um, but to oddly point. now, I, I find that, yeah, you know, when I, when I see people drinking, I, I'm not in, in judgment, but I think, how fucking boring is that? Like, huh. you know, like I've, I've never been bored since I quit drinking, but I was always bored when I was drinking. I definitely can relate to that. I'm sure that uh, curing boredom was a part of it in the beginning, but it by the end it was the most tiresome thing in my life it was the routine yeah. of drinking and just keeping maintaining the buzz it's exhausting to even think about yeah yeah well i i'm glad i'm glad you got away from it yeah i'm, I'm glad you did too and um yeah thanks so much for joining me on the show it was really fun getting to meet you and talk to you a little bit about this and congratulations well, I appreciate on the book too Thank you so much. Hopefully I'll meet you soon in person. Now I'd like to play you something special that Bela was kind enough to send. This is actually the last studio recording made by Jenny May in 2017. It's on a compilation released earlier this year called What's Wrong With Me and feels like a fitting way to close the show. The song is called Not Another Bad Year. Not another bad year. Not another bad year Oh no 
That's the show. Thank you to my guest, Bela Co. Crompicher, and check out the book, Love, Death, and Photosynthesis. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening. For music, news, and episode archives, visit backtothelight.net. And until next time, take care, y'all. Part of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.